Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be hearing from famed recording engineer, Fred Catero. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Hey, you guys, this is awesome. I'm so excited that we have an opportunity to play the NAM oral history interview with the great Fred Catero, uh, an amazing engineer with a lot of great history, as we're about to find out. And this was not a short interview by mm -hmm. any means, but I think it's really worth playing the whole thing. So I'm really glad that we have this opportunity in this special podcast to uh, talk a little bit about his amazing career and hear firsthand uh, some of the amazing history that he has lived through. Yeah, definitely. Um, since this interview is a little bit longer, we uh, we aren't going to be commentating as much as we usually do, but we'll still interject our thoughts here and there throughout the podcast. Um, did we want to give some background on Fred before we get started? Sure. Um, you know, the, the main thing I just want to say, because I think he tells his history so well in the interview, is here's a guy who sort of stumbled upon his career and has become really an expert on the history of recorded music. And one of the elements of this interview that was particularly compelling to me is that background, you know, talking about how uh, tape got started and, you know, how recording engineers have changed over the years and some of the, uh, the key people as well as the key innovations that uh, took place during his lifetime that made uh, all those changes possible for him to enjoy the career that he had. Uh, the other thing is, he's just a really nice guy. You know, I got a chance to hang out with him a couple of times uh, well before this interview took place in uh, 2018. And uh, he came down to the Museum of Making Music in Carlsbad, where the NAM uh, headquarters is, for the opening of uh, Don Lewis's Leo Live Electronic Orchestra. And we were friends ever since. Just a really nice guy. And um, so I think you guys are going to really enjoy this one. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I didn't know a whole lot about who he was and what he did, but just even looking him up on Google, I think he had 243 either albums that he was credited for or um, songs. It was just, it was crazy the amount of stuff that I could easily recognize that he was responsible for. Up first, you're going to hear a little bit about how he became a recording engineer and his first studio experiences. Can you tell me the first time you stepped into a recording studio? Well, now that that's a good question. A professional recording studio or a, a sort of recording room. The first place I worked was really not a studio in the sense that you think of one where musicians sit down and play and a singer sings. Uh, it was just a room where people could go and record their voice so they could send a record to their son or daughter overseas during the Second World War. Mm. And there used to be booths where you could drop a nickel in or a quarter <laughs> and uh, record like a three-minute cardboard disc and you could send that well this fellow that I worked for decided uh, he would offer one step above that and this would be you go into a studio he had an, an old upright piano and if you had you know somebody who wanted to sing a song uh, they could sit and play and sing you know whatever happy birthday or introduce a song. In fact, the place was only a few blocks from Tin Pan Alley in New York. And a lot of writers, songwriters, would drop in just so they could put their song on a piece of, you know, on a disc, and then take it over to the uh, 
publisher and see if they could sell their song rather than, you know, and leave them something rather than just say, I'll play it for you and I'll leave some of the sheet music. They could actually make a recording of them playing and interpreting how they heard it. So to that extent, it was a studio. But <clears throat> the first studio was that I managed. The first studio that I was really, you know, professional was up, up either in the, in the Bronx. I'm trying to remember. It's hard. It's been 70, not quite 70 years ago. But <clears throat> it was a studio where you could actually record a band. You could actually put like seven musicians in there. And it had a beautiful grand piano. And I managed it and ran it during the day. <clears throat> I'm sorry, yeah, during the day. And then later on, during the evening, and then some other fellow would uh, do the other half of the shift. And it was just two of us and we ran the place. And in those days I was making, I worked six days a week and made $18 a week. <laughs> you can't get a latte, a latte mochiato, uh, you know, brasciutto, whatever, today for that money. It's amazing how, you know, everything is relative right. time-wise. That's amazing. So what was it like for you working there? It was wonderful because I grew up with music. I wanted to be a musician. I think I mentioned that. And I realized it wouldn't be... I would be of no service whatsoever because I realized how bad I was. And my next thought was, oh, I can't leave the recording world, you know, the music world. Forget recording. I hadn't thought of recording in that sense. But how, what can I do to be around music that I love so much? And, I, and a, little a little voice said, Fred, if you know you know good, you must know what is good. Search out those who are good and record them and make them, bring them up to the best they can be with your talent. Add your talent and understanding of music because obviously you know you are no good. Mm. And um, that's what I did. So the, yes, when I walked into the first studio, and I, a real studio, and I got to see the musicians. Now I didn't, my first gig, I wasn't the one that was doing all the work. I was basically, keeping, you know, re uh, keeping the book and running the disc cutting machine. Mm. But there was an engineer who actually did it. And that was the guy that I took over for later. But I, I loved it because I said, this is good enough for me. I don't have to sit and play because I wanted to play piano because I loved the fact that you can play all the chords. Um, so I didn't have to actually play the piano to enjoy it. So here I was among these musicians. And mind you, this was not a major studio, so you didn't get the top of the line. You got some really good musicians, but the average, most of them were just, you know, regular local guys that had a band and wanted to play or would get together and play. But that was enough for me at the time. And at some point, I decided I had to move on because I had been married. I got married at 16. I'm a professional husband, I say. I've always had a wife. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had bills to pay. And uh, even though $18 was just about enough, it, I realized it couldn't last very long, you know, if I wanted to get up, get something, you know. Um, so I had to move to to a different job, and that's another story in itself. But, and in fact, only one year in my life did I not work in the record business, or in the music business. Only one year, and that was while I was looking for the other job. See, I, I took a job at a handbag factory, delivering handbags, and while I was delivering, I do my job real fast, drop off all the bags. And then I had an hour or two to go interview. And finally, I got a job doing this delay broadcasting. And that was my next step up. Mm. Tell me about that. That was Rock Hill Recording, it was called. And it was on Fifth Avenue. And the job there was very interesting. What they did, they would record radio broadcasts 
let me back up. In those days, what days? In the 50s, there weren't the satellites that we have today. And the phone lines were barely quality enough for high grade. In short spurts, in short distances, they were acceptable. Call them class A lines. But from here to Los Angeles, from here, from New York, because I was in New York at the time, to Los Angeles would have been very costly, if possible at all. And there were no satellites. So the way it was done is we would record from the New York outlets, we would record transcriptions, which are the, let me get one for you, just one second. Now this, this is a, a it's not really a radio transcription of a radio show because as you may be able to see it's got groove, uh, different cuts in it so it's more like an LP but it's not it does run at 33 and a third and it is vinyl but uh, what they did was oh there's so much to say <laughs> all right let me finish the thought the way they would record a half-hour show, each one of these, believe it or not, only runs 15 minutes aside. Because the groove, they hadn't invented LP, long playing, the fine groove, and it's mono, it's not stereo. So, one side, they would do a half-hour show on two discs, so that they didn't have to stop, turn it over. And so they'd play side one, when it ended, they'd automatically switch to side two. And so we would do that. We had two turntables, and the line would feed us. We'd get a direct feed from CBS, NBC, Mutual, WOR, and a ABC. Did I say CBS, NBC, Mutual, and ABC? Right. So that's how we would do it. And then we would ship these out, and it would say, play on this date. And so the people in the West Coast would hear stuff from New York a week later, and the people from uh, New York, I'm sorry, did I say New York? The people from L.A. would hear a New York broadcast a week later, and vice versa. They would do the same and ship to us transcriptions. To, to play. So it was job, our job to record and play shows over the networks. In the meantime, we would record these for the advertisers, for different people, sometimes the very actors or singers that were going to be on a show would ask if they could have a recording of their appearance on the Arthur Godfrey show. And we could do that. And that's where one of the things that got me really going on collecting old radio, which is another story there. Okay, we are listening to Fred Catero's NAM interview here on the uh, Music History Project podcast. And I just am so excited about this next segment as we are learning uh, these old methods of recording. I think it's really neat to uh, picture his... Um, his home and his studio where this interview took place because it's just chock full of all of these artifacts. And a lot of times he's just looking at, oh, there's the original wire recording that I knew. And this is the, the first Edison recording that I ever heard. And uh, these transcriptions, which um, from the radio days were these 16 inch records um, so that they could have a broadcast uh, half an hour long on one side and flip it over during a quick commercial break and play the other half an hour uh, just a neat, neat history, sort of a museum in his home. And uh, this reminded me that um, since the podcast is not visual, if you have the opportunity to go on to his web clip, you can take a look at at least the surroundings during this interview to get an idea of what I'm talking about. How did they find that, Mike? You can just head to nam.org, N-A-M-M.org slash library and click on the advanced search or oral history interview tab and then search for Fred and he'll pop right up. And Dan, was this the same Fred Catero recording engineer that you told me still does not 
use a computer at all <laughs> he just sticks to old school recording that's exactly right that's yes. that's pretty in- yeah. impressive no pro tools no nothing yeah <laughs> this guy is all old school and and doing very well he's still in demand people are still asking him to help out with projects uh he's in his 80s now so it's a pretty good uh, testimony to the skill that is learned over the years and and not reliant on new technology for sure so up next, you're going to hear a little bit about the different recording methods and kind of the evolution of how some of these things were developed. 33 and a third was originally used and developed for motion pictures. The early sound of movies was actually on disc. They had a disc machine and it synced to the record. 33 because that already that was a speed that was for you know some of the radio broadcasts and stuff and this is an interesting thing cbs if you remember years ago cbs invented the lp i think in the 40s 48 somewhere in there and they said ours is unique our our disc is just like the large ones, only this was not available to the public. And it runs at 33 and a third, but the grooves are very fine. And you can get 15 minutes to 20 minutes on a 12-inch record, which already was acceptable in the home. They tried to get a, a, a patent on it. This is the interesting part. They tried to get a patent on it, and for a while, I think for a few months, they did. They got it okay, because they claimed Originally, they said, you know, people said, the, the opponents said, because RCA wanted to do it, and the other labels wanted to do it, and they said, you got to pay us a royalty or, or, or a license. They said, yeah, but you didn't invent 33 and a third, because they proved that this was being used way back in the early days of sound movies. They said, yes, but we invented the fine groove. Guess who invented the fine groove? Edison. He said that was the cylinders too. The cylinders were cut at the same pitch, a lot of them, as the records you're using now. So tell me what's new. You you packed grooves close together. Well, Edison did too. So you don't can't have that, and you know you have um, the speed. You can't have that. 12-inch? You didn't invent that. There's been 12-inch records since they first started making records. But in the meantime, while this was in the courts, RCA was falling behind in sales because people were buying up these LPs while it was still pending. That's how the 45 came to be. They came out with one saying, okay, we don't want the rights. We, we know we don't have the rights to the fine groove. We don't have the right, but we have it, not 33 and a third, but 45, which is even better because it goes faster. The sound isn't squished together. And the big hole. <laughs> right? And so that's how, and they won. And so that's how then the different labels began to do the 45 and the wonderful thing about the 45 was that you didn't have to buy the entire album you could buy just the single with the hits you wanted on it and RCA had a player do you did you ever see one no sure yeah it goes so fast it's like it would be like if you had the eight uh, what is it the uh, uh, the Lone Ranger, the William Tell Overture. It would be like, here's a, the, the records, you'd pile them up, and it was a little thick spindle and a little box on the bottom there with a turntable, and it would go, you know, It went that fast, the changeover. So you never really... So you could have an entire stack of records and it sounded just like it was a regular, you didn't have to get up and change them or anything. So I thought that was interesting. I thought, you know, just as a part of history of music and recorded music for that matter and how all that came about, a lot of people are not aware of that. So I hope you, no, uh, thank you for allowing me that. Well, and similarly to that, about that same time, if I'm not uh, too far off, 
there was that whole idea of using tape. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because, of course, the guy you used to work with, Bing Crosby, had something to do with it. Yes, he did. Uh, <clears throat> tape was invented, the, the concept of recording on tape was invented in, or developed in Germany, from what I understand. I may be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure it is. And they were using it for, for war purposes, for during the war, for whatever reason. <clears throat> I don't know, for holding code, I don't know. Maybe just for recording music, for all I know. But they developed the machine. When Bing Crosby heard about it, he got one of these, got permission to present it to some org some company here. It wasn't I, I don't I don't think it was Ampex at the time, but maybe it was. And they modified and used the German technology in this machine. It had a name and I forgot what it was called. But that's how the tape came along. Why tape? Bing Crosby's point was you could edit tape much, much easier than you could discs. Even though they did work with discs. Remember I said they would play two discs? So let's say you had you were doing something musical and you ran across a section that wasn't good. They would be playing this up to the point where they wanted to fix. The band would then, they'd switch to the live band while they were copying the disc, but you you had the loss of quality from disc to disc because, you know, hmm. uh, every time you play it, it, it's more noise, more. So it's very hard to edit from disc or edit a disc, but they could edit tape. You could literally cut a piece out and put a piece in. The easiest thought was, well, what if I want to cough? You know, I can cough now in the studio and say, we'll take that out later, don't worry about it, and then which they would. Or if somebody said, can we do that song one more time? Or a singer maybe might have said, oh, well, if, if you're going to, since you, uh, you taped this, right? Yes. Well, I didn't like the way I sang. Can you remove it? Well, I said, no, you can do it again if you want. We'll, we'll do it one more time. Oh, great. Then they would go, and that's how. So it was a win-win all around. And eventually, the other good thing about tape was it didn't break. It didn't scratch that easily. And so they came up with, oh, you're going to like this. Oh, not this one, but it doesn't matter. Oh, here it is. Yeah, I'll show you this in a minute. You came up with the cassette. Now, the, the cassette has the same qualities. It's tape, just like the professional recording tape, only it goes much slower. So the quality is a little less. In fact, a lot less. But you could have it in the home. You can now take it in your car. Somebody had tried years ago to have a, a disc, an actual with a needle in a car. It barely worked. So that didn't last very long at all. But cassettes did. And you could play these things over and over again. And, and now you could actually have a recording machine at home that was easy to work. They had, from the war, they had wire recorders, and that became the thing that was in the home. But it, the wire would tangle. You had to knot it, make a knot if it broke, so you lost the piece. With tape, you just pull out the tape when it's broken, put a, you know, put a piece of adhesive. They had special tape for splicing. Put it back, and you, you, had, you could preserve your stuff. Look at this. Talk about merchandising. It's a comb. <laughs> in the shape of a cassette. I mean, isn't that cute? That's very cute. It's one of these, you know. <laughs> oh, it's amazing all the stuff they come up with. <laughs> so was there uh, ever um, a place you actually called your studio? No. I used to say, people say, Fred, don't you have a studio? This is a good question. Thank you for asking. I used to say, you know, if somebody gave me a studio, the first thing I'd do is put it up for sale. How can you say that? I'll tell you how I can say that. 
when you get to the big names, and I was just starting to get into it, and already I realized the only person who would want a studio themselves is a person who wants to record themselves. Then you can spend hours on your own dollar in your own room. Mm. My, my, my wife used to say, Fred, you're a legend in your own room. And anyway, <laughs> so uh, if you wanted to be in business, as a business, it didn't make sense. The reason being that when you get up there in fame or in money, the major labels, first of all, the major labels had their own studio, most of them. There were some who didn't. Those were the smart ones. There's a long story there. But I remember where I worked. In fact, one of the studios was the Automat. I'll give you an example. It was called the Automat. It was David Rubinson developed it out here. We used to work at Columbia Records. This was a little later. I went to Columbia, and that's how I, I got involved with Bill Graham and David Rubinson and did so many of the names that I did. I was fortunate. You know, they say when you're hot, you're hot. Well, I got real hot at that time. So I was recording everybody, you know. <clears throat> and David and I left for various reasons. He for one, I for the other. Because we thought we'd do better by ourselves. And he came out here. He tried to convince Columbia Records to move out here. And they said no, like all big corporations. So we came out here and he said, well, I'm going to go and do this. Because they wanted, Columbia wanted everybody, if, if, if they, we sign them, they'll come to us. They'll record in our facilities. After all, we have the best engineers, the best producers, the best sound, the best equipment, cutting edge. Da -da. <clears throat> So they didn't want to come here. And David said, you don't understand the, the mentality of the people in San Francisco or musicians in general now. And he said, they're not going to go for this. They want, you know, they, they're, they're free people. They're, you know, what is it, tie-dye and drugs and whatever, marijuana, whatever it was. And, you know, you're a corporate. You walk in here, it's like walking into... Bank of America headquarters, you know, everything, you know, don't touch this, don't touch that, only per authorized personnel only, all these signs turn you off. They want a hip place where they can play music, light up a joint, whatever it is, and not be, you know, corrected or told you can't do that here, we'll lose our license, whatever it is. So he said, I'm going to open my own studio. So he opened the Automat. And um, it was very surprising to me when David says, now he had a wonderful board that he spent hundreds, not hundreds of thousands in those days, thousand, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars for. He had an opportunity to record a big group. I forget who it was, it doesn't matter. They walked in. Hey, what kind of board you got? This is the worst. When you know a little about something, you think you know it all. What kind of board you got? What kind of mics? You know, is this a studio? <clears throat> I could see the attitude already. I find out later they wanted the board changed if they were going to work there. Mm. And David taught, you know, he said I, to me, he said, I just put that thing in. He said, but if I want the deal, the contract, I got to trade in this board or put it in a warehouse and rent one or something and then put it back or whatever. He said, but I need the account. I need the account. I need the work because it's CBS. And he used to work for CBS. And it means more work. So I'll do it. And I said, but you're letting these kids tell you what to do? He said, I have no choice. That's why I wouldn't want a studio. I wouldn't want somebody coming in and saying, Oh, like well, I did. I remember one one time I was in the studio and a guy comes in. What kind of compressors you got? And I said, Well, we got the LA two A's or whatever. Oh, that piece of shit. Hey, Jack, you know what they're using here? And I said, Oh my, right? I, I, that's what would happen. Mm. So since I'm not using it for myself, it would doesn't make sense mm. because the expense of owning a studio is so big just to keep the the clients. And the other thing about it is, you don't get rich off the poor clients. They don't have the bucks. 
I'll tell you a beautiful story about uh, fantasy. Why I say, if, if you just deal with small groups, you'll never get be able to pay the, the nut. I'm in fantasy, and in the next studio over, I hear this beautiful guitar playing, and I told my assistant, I said, hey, that sounds like Carlos Santana. And he says, it is. I don't know if I told you this story on the other day. He says, it is. I said, oh, wow, that's great. He says, yeah, he booked five weeks or six weeks. He's going to do the basics. I said, six weeks to do basics? He says, yeah, and then he's going on tour, and then he's come back, and he's, gonna, he's booked another six weeks for overdubs, and then he's going on another thing, and he's going to come back, and he booked another six weeks for Mixdown. Mind you, at fantasy rates. I mean, that's not... You know, a hundred dollars an hour. It's like two fifty an hour at least. Mm. And I said, no wonder albums cost so much. It's not. It's not just how much goes up the nose. It's how expensive it is because everything is. There's so much money involved. And even though Santana's going to pay for it, it's out of royalties, which he's. You know, if he doesn't sell, it's not out of his pocket directly. I mean, it is because of the way the contracts are. You know, if one album doesn't pay, the one that does will cover the others. But the point is, that's how you make the money. The people I worked with later, when I started to get cool, nobody wanted to work with an old man. Um, they just wanted to record. They didn't. They said, you know, we don't want to overdub. We don't want to do all this punching in and coming back and doing things in pieces. We want to go in, play the tune, come in and listen, meaning no mix. I mix it while we do it. And I'm one of the people who still knows how to do that. If we like it, it's a take. If we don't, we'll either do an insert, just you know, a few bars before and after, then edit, or do another take. But we want, it, we want to do the album in two days. You don't get rich that way. And we, I, I had about five or six ragtime and Dixieland groups that do that here in the Bay Area. And for a while, I was doing them all. And, you know, so you go in for two or three days, maybe one day of mixing, you know, if there is mixing involved. Because I would always record all the tracks, but do a mix at the same time. Most of the time, they accepted the mix. They said, no, that's good. We like it. Because the truth is, it's not in the mix. I mean, it is now in, uh, in some cases. It's not the music at all. It's the, the, the sound of the mix. But, it, but with Dixieland and Ragtime, it's what they play that's important. Who cares if he, he, he played a wrong note? Nobody's going to know unless they have the score in front of them. And chances are they don't because we've modified it. So it could have been intentional. So leave it alone. Don't worry about it. So that's how that went down. And so there you go. I mean, I don't know if I answered the question directly. Yeah, no, that was great. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is you were recording um, electronic musical instruments at the very beginning. Yes. And, and Herbie Hancock and people like that come to mind. Well, I would yes. love to hear any your thoughts about, I mean, were there difficulties because you were pioneering that concept? Very minor. Herbie is, is one of the, 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 what do they call it, uh, people who can see ahead, visionaries. Herbie is a visionary. He's not locked to one style, one period, one discipline. He loves to experiment, and he paid the price for it. He, you know, he's been accused of selling out to the man or... or not respecting the music that got him where he was, all kinds of comments. But he loves to experiment and try things. And when the, the first early synthesizers <clears throat> came out, and vocoder, that was another one that he loved. Vocoder is a machine that allows you to sing into it, and what comes out can be a chorus of people, like a group of people, like a quartet, even though it's one voice, the machine creates three others. And then you can sing like, because you play the, the right notes. And it changes the voice enough so it sounds like a, a group of three or four. 
or you can change the pitch of your voice or like if you sing a little flat or sharp that's another feature of some of these devices and Herbie found it very fascinating not only using them the way they were intended originally but to finding new ways to use them and Brian Bell who was his genius roadman and manager was also very very good with computers and he and I helped Herbie develop new techniques using the existing vocoder and the existing synthesizers because Herbie would love to you know have different voicings and in some cases I think he even had Brian not myself because I'm not an electronic person but I think with Brian's help had certain new voices made for him that he could use in his uh, arrangements and uh, yeah so he was one of the forerunners of that technology and there were a few others Don Lewis who was when I, ha I had a label at one time does again therein lies another story but uh, he was the first person I signed and he created a, a device called uh, Leo uh, what is it I forget what the L live live electronic orchestra. orchestra oh you know all about it yeah. so that's uh, you know Don Lewis is another one who is very instrumental in showing what can be done electronically and this is a brings a very good point to mind it shows how music is perceived what it can do the direction it can go but doing it by its own on its own merit not n new ways of doing the old but new music actually music written for that uh, technology and in some cases it's used very intelligently and very nicely and it makes sense like all music I mean people a lot of times they think oh the old stuff oh, I miss the old stuff it's so wonderful there was garbage there too there was garbage in classical music there are books somebody told me where like Tchaikovsky writes and he says I, I regret every time I hear that piece that I wrote I regret having written it such a piece of dreck as they say which means you know gar uh, garbage to be nice uh, it's, it's terrible stuff and I'm sorry I ever introduced it so even the, the classical writers that we revere so greatly, we go, we only listen to good music. Well, if you read some of these, you'd see they thought it was terrible. <laughs> or, you know, that wasn't my choice. The church made me do it that way. You know, because a lot of them wrote for churches because that, where the money is. You either, it's like the, the paintings, artists, they painted where the money was. What do you paint? I want you to paint my daughter. <laughs> there she is now and it'd be some you know who knows what they had to do the best they could with what they had so you have these pictures in the galleries of these women you know big like this you know and they're nice beautiful works but the subject matter that's how they lived right I mean they had to do that and once in a while they were free enough or lucky enough to have somebody you know that looks like you and they did a beautiful you know you have a, a wonderful not you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not me. Even you. Even no, you. Even me. Even you. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is that today things, I know that there's music written for not the words, not the melody, but the effects. And you can tell that when somebody does a cover. A cover is when somebody does something that's you know does a version of a song the way somebody did it originally and they do exactly the same sounds and you say why because without them it doesn't work like a bridge over troubled water I can hear that like a bridge without that it's not the same because you can say, like a, I can't say, like a bridge over troubled water. Da 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 da. It, it just doesn't have that 
So people want to hear that because that's what part of the part of the structure of the song, and that's how it's presented every time. Whether it's a a little local band that does it, or whether it's some other big star, you're paying tribute. They do it the same way because it was part of the sound. Well said. There's a couple of people that you worked with. I was wondering if we could talk about what what uh, comes to mind when I mention Aaron Copeland. Dignity, humility, uh, sensitivity, a wanting to get the best from whoever you're working with. Uh, I m mixed uh, the tender land with him, and we did a lot of work. And I got a big oh, th I got to say this. You know, people say, you know, when somebody gives you something or they give you a compliment, you go, oh, it was nothing. You've heard that. Well, I want to thank you on that. You know, I got that book you wrote. It's really great. Nah, come on. And, you know, it's just that. You're actually insulting them. You're saying you don't know what you're talking about. What I learned early in the game, when somebody compliments me, I used to make excuses. Somebody say, hey, Fred, you know that new record of whatever? I just heard it. Hey, it's good. Well, well, actually, one guy, he said, hey, it's bad. And I started apologizing. He says, no, I mean, it's good. I said, well, why did you say it's bad? He said, well, you know, it's bad, good, bad, you know. And this is when I began to see the new way of speak, new speak. But I used to like if, if he, you know, if I really felt it could have been better, I used to say, oh, but you should have heard the, the mixes that I had originally before they changed it. And then I said, why? Why, Fred, what difference does that make? The guy's complimenting you. Just be gracious and say thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Let it go. Don't start bragging, saying how much more wonderful you are. What difference does it make? He's never going to know. You can't, you can't describe it. And to tell him, oh, it was much better than that. How, how dare you be so so, you know, you're assuming he's going to think it's better. You just because you thought it was better. So just say thank you. But never say it was nothing. You know? And so, see, now I missed my thought. Um, ask the question. Aaron Copeland. Aaron Copeland. I have been complimented by so many great people. I'm not ashamed to to say that I, when I when somebody says, well, first of all, I don't keep, I don't like my work. I'm very unhappy with it. I don't know if you, you I played stuff for you, and I you may have said, did you do that? And I usually say no because I didn't. And they say, well, why don't you play the stuff you did? I said because I don't like it. I said what I'm playing you, I think is really good, much better. And I want to play. I want to show off my system here. So what I play, when I play it, I'm very unhappy with it. And whether it's true or not, to me, I can't stand it. So I'm playing this, okay? And when people compliment me, especially people I respect so greatly, why should I belittle that? It's not bragging. I'm saying, he told me, so we were mixing, and he'd, he'd say, I'd, he'd say, uh, Fred, because at first he was calling me Mr. Gatero. And I said, please don't. My name is Fred. He said, well, only if you call me Aaron. I said, yes, yes, Aaron. And so we were back and forth. And he, you know, he'd say, all right, now be careful of this and don't watch that. And I'm mixing this thing. It was already recorded, but I'm making the final mix. And listen to this. So we talk about great man. He said, Fred, uh, hold it a minute. I said, okay, stop the tape. Still on tape then. He said, do you think there's enough sopranos in that chorus part? I just said, why are you asking me? He says, well, I'm interested in your opinion. I said, yeah, but you wrote the thing. Tell me, you want more? He says, no, 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 leave it the way it is. He said, but I never heard it like that before. He says, I like that. That's much nicer. He says, leave it, leave it alone. Let, let me live with it a minute and go, just keep going. Anyway, it was things like that. 
Or he would then, you know, where necessary, he'd say, I think the trumpets should be louder here. You're drowning out. You're, you're not, you're, they, they're supposed to drown out the whatever. And then I'd listen, I'd do it, and he'd say, fine. At the end, he got up, and as he's putting his coat on at the final day, he came over, he said, Fred, he said, I got to tell you, you got a hell of a set of ears. Now, he didn't mean that I hear, you know, high frequencies and low, but how you hear things. He says, I just love what you did. And I never, I'll carry that to my grave because of who he was. Or, you know, and the humility in his voice and the, the whole thing not, you know, it was a pleasure having you work with me. You know, it was like just so wonderful. And I've been fortunate not to work and surround myself with people who don't appreciate what I do. And at the same time, I've done the same. I try not to work with people that I don't, that I feel I can't help, that I don't appreciate for whatever reason, whether it's my lack of understanding of their style, because I'm not going to be of any help, and I don't want to be just a guy that pushes buttons. So. Well said. So let's go from one extreme to the other. What was it like hanging out with Muhammad Ali? <laughs> well, I didn't really hang out with him. <laughs> But he was amazing, I mean, not amazing. He was brought in by, I'm trying to think of his name, Kaepernick? Uh, it doesn't matter. I forget his name, the man who brought him in. Uh, it, I did, there wasn't much communication with, between he, he and I, but he really wasn't a singer. He didn't want to sing. In fact, he never sang, as far as I know, unless they came out with records of him later. Um, are you aware of the record? Have you heard it? The one where he goes, I am the greatest. Okay. <clears throat> Even he was surprised, because, you know, he, he said, I don't really sing. And he said, you don't have to. He said, you're not going to sing. You're going to use your, your little thing where you get up there, I am the greatest. And so he couldn't figure out, he said, don't worry, just, just go out and say, I am the greatest every time I point to you. <laughs> and they had this, this four or five piece band, whatever it was, and they did, I am the greatest. And, that, and so they used that. Okay, that was a big segment of his interview all at once, and I loved it because it talked about everybody from uh, uh, some of our friends here at, uh, at NAM, like uh, Don Lewis, as well as Herbie Hancock and Carlos Santana. And we have a couple of more goodies up our sleeve for the rest of the interview. He's uh, name dropping a few here, but there's a lot of more great history and some other amazing people he's worked with that we're going to hear coming up. But Fred Catero has got quite a career and it's really neat that uh, he's so articulate about sharing that and uh, has these great stories. And of course, the lessons that he's learned too, which I think are very germane to a lot of people who are in the uh, the industry now, trying to learn and you know what sort of things to look out for, what sort of things can we glean from some of the old practices. And I think that was part of his mission of this interview, and probably what he's um, interested most in doing now in his older years is to try to convey some of those to younger generations. Well, back to what I said earlier about him still not using computers or software at all for his recording techniques, it really says a lot to those trying to get into the field that you don't need to be a crazy tech expert to get into recording. You got to have a good set of ears and you got to practice mm -hmm. a lot and work on your craft. And I think Fred demonstrates that perfectly. Plus, you can have a career where you can hang out with Muhammad Ali. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so up next, we're going to hear Fred talking about uh, moving to San Francisco and working with someone you may know, uh, Janis Joplin. When I came here to San Francisco, there was such a big hoopla, not because of me. I'm saying th this thing that happened of David Rubinson, top attorney, I mean, David Rubinson, top producer at Columbia, Fred Cotero, supposedly top producer at Columbia, Brian Rohan, top attorney, music attorney, and Bill Graham, top promoter. They formed this Fillmore Corporation thing. 
And so the idea was for Dave Rubinson to sign as many acts as Bill Graham could muster from his collection of people that would use his venues and then sign them to Columbia Records. And I don't know what the inner deals were, who gets what. I was the chief engineer of the project. But when we came out here, the first within the first year, because, I mean, these groups were all over the place. I mean, it's not like David brought them. They were here already, and he was the one that tried to convince Columbia, remember, to come here. In the paper, it was like number two industry in San Francisco, only next to tourism. Tourism was number one. The music business was number two. We saw, we, Bill Graham, Dave Rubinson, all of us, saw the potential to make this the new rock and roll, uh, what's it, uh, the alternative, um, music in, in America. But L.A. didn't like that idea. Because you don't take away, I mean, L.A. is the recording capital of the world. L.A. is the music business. L.A. is show business. So they did everything they could to destroy the image. They would sign people. In other words, people were signed from here to, to record for labels that had offices in L.A. And on, nowhere on the record does it appear that it was recorded in San Francisco by a San Francisco artist. It was always, you know, now on whatever label, and that's it. And by the third year, it wasn't even on the 20, you know, on the list of 20 top businesses or, or income things in San Francisco. They had the mayor lined up, was going to be, and the idea was, just like Nashville has the country music capital of the world, how do they show that they're the country music capital? Not just by their music. You go to a, a, a department store to buy a pair of jeans or something, jacket, and you see the window display. You see a jacket, right, or a, or a mannequin with a jacket, and a bale of hay, and a guitar, right? A picture of Henry, so a picture of whatever, somebody, you know, somebody from that genre. And everywhere you'd go, there'd be relations to the music of that genre. And so they took advantage of music to promote the sale of a million other things. We were trying to do that here in San Francisco. That this was, you know, the power, the love, power, the, the, the flower children, uh, all this wonderful stuff that was coming out of the Bay Area. And the stores could, could do that. And they dropped the ball. And because of LA, they got no support. So that leads me into asking about Janis Joplin. Wonderful story. I have one. There's a story concerning, I did the Cheap Thrills album, so they, these, that was going to be done in New York. So she went in the studio, big studio, Studio A, huge studio. And she's not, that was her, her big brother's not a big band, four, four guys, I think. So we set up in part of the studio, and she did her thing. And what amazed me was how much she gave. How, I mean, she poured. She'd come in sweating, her hair just terrible. Not her, the band. The bass player, out of tune, missed parts. Producer was beside himself. What's going on? Well, man, we, we, you know, we're, the studio's so big and cold and whatever. He says, what's, what's the problem? He says, we, we need to do it in a club. He says, well, I'll tell you what. Let's, w this studio can be divided into smaller rooms. They have these huge curtains that close. They made, Columbia made a stage with the curtains behind and curtains in front. They actually had the stage riz, risen you know, the platform. They brought in folding chairs and stuff for people, you know, for the secretaries and stuff to come and sit so they'd have a little audience. That fell through. What's the problem now? And each time, each time, she'd give her all. 
with her little southern comfort. Well, we can't do it here because, after all, you know, it's it's this studio thing, you know, it's it's the glass, the engineer, the whole thing. It's just, you know, we, 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 we need to, to be, you know, on a live venue type thing. So the next thing I know, oh, so, just before this, they're doing the take, and, and they had, Janice had done like three takes, and for her that's a lot. It, not, it was not uncommon in the rock world to do 20 and 30, but when you're singing like that, you can only do two or three and b before you don't have it. Pardon the language. He, so here's the producer, he goes, after like three takes, that's very close, Janice. Uh, okay, let's do just one more. Here we go. Take four. And he looks and she's not there and the door opens. She goes, I'm not going to sing with those motherfuckers. Picks up her drink in her southern comfort and walks out. And the band is going, what happened? What happened? He says, that's it. You can pack up. She's gone. She walked out on him. She said, I'm not going to sing with those people. Next thing I know, I get a message. We're going to Detroit. They're going to book it in the Grandee Ballroom in Detroit. They had the the board is as as big as this couch. They had to carry that up. There was no elevator. I thought they'd be a, a freight elevator or something. They went up the main front steps with this four guys two on each end carrying a board up to where the, the you know the backstage. And I was in a little room maybe half the size of this room with this big board on one end, speakers, stairs up to the stage. She did the thing. They had a real audience. They must have given tickets away or whatever they did. There was no reaction. They were shocked. And you couldn't believe that a woman could do this. You know, and everybody, Right, they couldn't, have, and you know, as the sound faded from the big explosion at the end, you, all you heard was a couple of these, right? We had to go back to New York and overdub. Some of the parts were not good either on the bass, but we managed to get enough isolation to put, but we fixed it. Bill Graham was never there. He introduced it from New York. He happened to be in New York. and. We overdubbed it in a room where they they were they did the, the the overlays, and out in the hall, they had people with tambourines and whistles, and shakers and all kinds of stuff, to make like a real audience, and we had the door open so they could hear it and said, whatever you want just shake those tambourines and stuff and we'll put it in wherever we want, <laughs> that's how that record came about. <laughs> but one one time in 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 Detroit, this is a story I wanted to tell about Janice and how what a sad case. John Simon was the producer. So John, Janice, myself went out to a bar, or a cafe, a place where you could get sandwiches and alcohol. So she's sitting on one side of the desk, and John and I are on the other side desk table and the waiter comes over yes ma'am she says I'd like five um, southern comforts yes ma'am you and we ordered comes back it brings a glass of she goes hey grabs his she says where's the other four he says well when you finish I'll fill you up she says no I want all all five lined up here yes ma'am he brought them and she took one the next one. Finally, about the third one, she's looking at me. She says, I look old, don't I? I said, well, Janice, you've been working so... I look old, don't I? I said, yes. She said, yeah. I never forgot that. We didn't talk about it. She didn't want to talk about it. I did. I mean, I felt badly. I didn't want to even answer, but she, the way she interrupted me, and she knew already it was weighing on her. Things were not going her way. 
And whatever was going on, she could sense this wasn't the great answer in heaven for her, the great stardom, the great fulfillment of a dream. Screaming like that for people who don't even know what the hell she's doing. You know, it's a, it would be the kind of thing that a singer like her would go and some asshole in the audience would go, Take it off! Take it off! And you go, you're missing the whole point. What do you think I'm here for? That's all you think? That's it? That's what you thought you were going to see? It is heartbreaking. I have the picture on the hall I showed you, I think, the unpublished picture of her, her photographer. I don't know who it was. I forget. It's probably on the back. Uh, gave it to me. But uh, yeah, I remember her very fondly that way. Sad, because it's not like we went places. I never dated her. Wasn't that. That was the only real where we had a one-on-one. -on -one. No lawyers, no band members, nobody, just her, the producer, and myself. And when she said, she didn't say that to John, she said it to me. That was just such an epic story about him working with Janis Joplin and kind of her personality shining through. I love how he just kept talking about every single time she did a recording, she just gave it her all. Mm, and yeah. I mean, she would be covered in sweat and just well, really Yeah, just you hear those recordings and it's like, it sounds like someone's doing that, but I mean, I don't know. You think like, oh, it's just like that talent, that raw talent that someone has. But to hear hear him actually say, yeah, she was putting her mm -hmm. life into it. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, that's crazy. And the responsibility that he has trying to get it right so that she doesn't wear herself out. Oh, yeah. Because Imagine if you the put pressure. 100% in all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're confirmed in some of the idiosyncrasies of Janice uh, just listening to the, you know, the Southern comfort. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We've heard about that, you know, so <laughs> him confirming some of the, the wildness of her as a person, as well as the gentle side, you know, I think was really very compelling. So, um, I think the cool thing, good. I think the cool thing about all of the stories like this that we've heard throughout the podcast is that even though the, like the fun stories that you've heard of are true, the musicianship with all of these people, it's incredible. Mm. Like like Janis Joplin, you hear songs, you think it's great songwriting, she's having a good time and but you dive deeper into it and it's like she this was this was everything. Yeah. I mean and right. just the skill, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well said. So moving forward towards the end of this interview, um, we are going to hear some final thoughts from Fred. Thinking about someone else might be the best thing you could do for yourself in the long run. And I've tried to live like that, and I have nothing, no regrets. I'm not at the top, if that is what top is. Some of the things that people would have to do, like somebody, when I told you, they said you could be very rich. When I saw what it took to really be rich, and it has nothing to do with screwing people, the lifestyle, the attitude, the people you had to associate with, I didn't want any part of it. And I made, I did all right. I didn't do great, but I did all right. I'm happy I made that choice. Because there's more to life than Earth, in my mind. You know, life is a continuum in my mind. And this is but a twinkling of an eye. And I think I did fine. There's very few places I can walk. Oh. We were at a place with Artie Garfunkel once, Simon Garfunkel, here in San Francisco. <clears throat> and we're waiting for a table. And it's John Simon, I think John Simon again was the producer. And we're waiting and we're, we're almost ready for the table. You know, we're at the bar or, it's not really a bar, it's a seeing place. And John comes over to, I mean, uh, John, uh, Paul Simon comes over, he says, can we go, can we go? And he says, no, we're just about to get the table. He says, no, 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 I want to go, I want to go. And he says, why? He says, somebody just walked in, I don't want him to see me. And I thought, God, what does that tell you? And there's almost no place 
My wife used to say, there's no place we can go on this earth that somebody doesn't know you, Fred. I was in, in we were in Hawaii, no, in, in, in Jamaica. And then I'll stop. We were in Jamaica and this hotel and my wife says, is there a little beach where nobody goes, where you can go? And he gave us the direction, we went. And sure enough, it was an empty little little inlet, you know, with nice sand and all. And we're walking along in the sand, kicking the, Fred, hey, Fred. And she goes, I, I, I give up. <coughs> that we found somebody. At the airport, the same thing. People come up at the airport, hey, Fred, what are you doing? Where are you going, New York? What, what do you got, a, 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 a gig, you know, whatever? And she said, you know, everywhere you go, somebody comes up to you. And I thought, what a lucky person that I don't have to hide or worry and say, oh, I hope I don't want to go to the airport because, oh, this guy lives here and he travels a lot. And if he sees me, oh, God, what am I going to do? Because he can call me out publicly. You mother, you know what you did to me? You know what this guy did to me? You know what he's about? I don't have to worry. And if he does, he's lying. Enough. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. It's been a lot of fun. Right. <laughs> well, that was really a great interview, and I'm really glad we had the opportunity to share that as part of our podcast. Fred Cotero continues to be an inspiration to a lot of people and a mentor to uh, recording engineers today. And I think having this story and uh, our ability to share it with other people hopefully will continue his legacy. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Be sure to check out our future episodes. we got another one coming out in two weeks. And feel free to leave a review on our SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to the podcast. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Michelle Shedler. And Dan Del Fiorentino. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, you can send those over to library at nam.org.